Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, here where their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and those of all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. On today's show, for the first time ever, the Wheeler Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas is under new leadership. Former Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director, founder of the Opera House Talks and author of Stella Price's shortlisted memoir, Diving Into Glass. Honestly, how did she get the time to do it all? Caro Llewellyn steps into the role this month. Caro joins me later in the hour to talk about taking on a live literary programming centre during the time of COVID-19 but soon. It's sometime in the 1840s and Gabrielle Fox, the hapless third son of a Norfolk baronet, lands in Van Diemen's land on a quest to find Marion McGinn, a relative of the woman he loves in the hopes that he might win her hand. Guided by a possibly untrustworthy and mysterious Irishman he thinks of as the cannibal, Gabriel blunders through a world he doesn't understand but that will force him to take a harder look at himself and the place he comes from. That's the plot of A Treacherous Country, the 2020 Vogel Award-winning novel by Tasmanian author K.M. Krumink, who will be joining me on Backstory shortly. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. How came I to a place like this? What spirit drew me here? These and other questions perplexed my mind on that day's ride north from town. The clouds drifted and the wind blew as clouds and wind will do. My breath was white in the cold air and my horse plodded. And when I threw an apple core, it made a nice arc and subsequently fell upon the earth, just as you might imagine. It's some time in the 1840s and Gabrielle Fox, the hapless third son of a Norfolk baronet, lands in Van Diemen's land on a quest to find Marion McGinn, a relative of the woman he loves in the hopes that he might win that lady's hand. Guided by a possibly untrustworthy and mysterious Irishman he thinks of as the cannibal, Gabrielle blunders through a world he doesn't understand, but that will force him to take a much harder look at himself and the world he comes from. That's the plot of A Treacherous Country, the 2020 Vogel Award winning novel by Tasmanian author K.M. Cromink. And K.M. or Kate Cromink is on the line with me now. Kate, welcome to Backstory. It's lovely to be here. Now, 
Your book is uh, a really extraordinary feat of kind of recreating a sort of uh, relatively authentic voice of the period that you're writing about. I imagine um, there's many references in this book to literary works of the day, um, references to Dickens, re- references to, to the Odyssey. Um, your, your character, you know, sort of feels very much like uh, they've stepped out of a period novel. Talk to me a little bit about uh, where this, this voice came from. I guess it started with a lot of my own reading. You know, I went through a period in my life where I thought it was really important that I read every single classic, so I was doing that. Um, So it came with a bit of context to it. But really when I was discovering Gabriel's voice, he kind of took me along with him. So it unfolded quite naturally. Um, And I feel like he has a bit of a smattering of a classical education that he didn't pay much attention to, so he makes the odd reference here and there. And I would often go to the Oxford English Dictionary and look up a word or phrase as I used it, just to double-check, you know, because they have those great quotations in there so I could check and see you know, the usages around the time I'm writing and and if it would be appropriate. So it was a combination of of my own context and the the character unfolding naturally um, and my own research as well. Yeah, so look, it's really, I mean, this is such a a kind of interesting vehicle for looking at uh, some of the you know, the real damage done by colonialism. Um, your character is sort of blundering in to, uh, you know, Australia in the, you know, as it was, or I guess Van Diemen's land in the 1840s, really doesn't understand the country, immediately makes assumptions about his companion and Irishman based purely on his, you know, presumed class and, and race, that he's a cannibal, <laughs> you know, because he must be some kind of a, you know, ruffian because he's in the colonies. Um, and, you know, all of the extension of the horrors that has happened in, in this country as well. But you handle all of this with a very with a very light touch. Can you talk about uh, the, the way in which you've constructed this world? This was something I thought really deeply about, um, of course. And as you say, the novel is quite light. You know, there's quite a bit of humour in there, although I tried to ground it with a real heart as well. And, you know, again, as you say, there was real horror and real brutality to Van Diemen's Land in the day, particularly with the experience of of First Nations, Tasmanians, of course, but, but also with convicts too, I think. And so I had this character arriving with conceptions of his time and class and so I had him observing this reality and people would present him with this reality and allude to things that we as as the reader I hope understand but that he just doesn't understand and it just shows how wrong his presence there is I think. Absolutely he's a really he's a fascinating um, character because he's kind of really um, you know He's this kind of idealist, um, romanticising his quest. He's on this great odyssey and right from the beginning you can sort of see he just has no clue about what's going on. Early on in the piece he's uh, he's sold a horse that has had boot black put over all of the, the patches on, on their skin, this poor mistreated horse, um, which is in itself a metaphor, but but sees, it, uh, sees the horse at first through the eyes of a great steed from the Odyssey. You know, so you're getting... Uh, and in fact, even, um, you know, 
this kind of knowing um, humour from the other characters where they're sort of pulling one over uh, Gabriel right from the start. There's also elements in here that I think that there's there's been parallels drawn um, between, you know, other, other great works um, of history, um, you know, really particularly around the sort of whaling um, side of things that you discuss. Can you talk about some of that and how you've drawn in other books into your own? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think it does kind of come um, from what I was talking about earlier, you know, having that context of, of just having read a lot. Um, actually, when I was writing this novel, I was doing it as a bit of a lifeline. Um, I was a new mother and I was actually hallucinating with exhaustion and I felt very removed from my intellectual self. I was having this very physical and this emotional experience and I wanted kind of my brain back and and so I wrote this novel as a response to that as a way to reclaim myself and so for that reason I kind of did research as I went along so the engagement that I've made with with other novels and and other literature other themes was um quite natural um and incorporated into the story sort of almost led by the character himself if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author K.M. Cromink or Kate Cromink about A Treacherous Country, her Vogel Award winning novel that is uh, set in the 1840s in, uh, in Tasmania or as it was then um, Van Diemen's Land. Uh, your voice, uh, we have touched on that uh, earlier is very particular to this character. You use, I think I, I read a little at the start to sort of give a, a feel for the sort of language uh, that you use, but you've tried to stick faithfully, I think, somewhat to the style of novels written around that time where you have, you know, what I like to think of as wacky caps for for particular <laughs> words that have been just just capitalised for emphasis, um, you know, overuse of exclamation points. Uh, you've, you know, used the sort of O without an H, um, you know, in that kind of very stylized form. You've obviously had a lot of fun with uh, with the idiom in this book. Can you can you discuss how you've kind of you've built it? Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun, and, and I did it really intentionally because I think Gabriel is making up for some pretty profound insecurities through presenting himself a bit pompously and sort of demonstrating that he definitely knows what's going on. You know, he's engaged with literature and he's talked with people, and this is how people talk. So it was really fun kind of um, creating that voice with that sort of trembling little boy underneath it, you know. Um it really did flow quite naturally with the story. So I would write along and I'd stop, you know, I'd use a phrase like, for example, it hit him like a slap in the face, you know, a cliche that we might not think twice about. But I did have to think twice because I wanted it to be authentic. So then I would go and research that phrase and, and make sure it was okay for the time. I didn't want it to be distracting, but I wanted it to feel immersively authentic. Yeah, it's a really interesting balancing act, isn't it, when you're writing in a historical voice, how to kind of achieve that sense of, um, you know, really being in a in a book written at that time at the same time as not losing a modern audience. Did you find that you were sort of, you know, in certain senses, you know, trying to, rec you know, reconcile those two motivations? 
Definitely, yeah, absolutely. And in particular, something that I've seen in a lot of classic novels is really, really long run-on sentences, often punctuated just with hyphens again and again. And I, I had quite a lot of that in, in my first draft and split back quite a lot, broke up the sentences into shorter, more modern sentences, just because it, it felt a bit, um, a bit silly, a bit self-indulgent, actually. Yeah, it's, I also felt as though, and, and, you know, feel free to correct me on this, that perhaps <laughs> you did something that Dickens was famous for doing, which was reading the book aloud. Did you have, because it does have a really, I can hear it in my head as I, as I read. Did you, in fact, read his, um, his kind of narrative out loud at times? I actually didn't, no, um, because I was writing often with, with my daughter, on me, and I was very wary of waking her up, so I would type as quietly as I possibly could. Um, but I, I so often wrote in cafes because that would be a way for me to, you know, go and have a breath away. I'd, I'd go for a walk to a cafe and write there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I heard it very clearly in my head. You know, I've always been quite an imaginative person, and so maybe there there was an element of doing that, but just internally. Yeah, it's a really interesting book because I think, again, being in in the mindset of a character of that time, you sort of, you know, there's a lot of I've, I, I total disclosure over the period of lockdown. I have listened to quite a few audio books, um, which were, you know, older kind of, um, particularly crime books from from yeah. around this time period and maybe a little bit later. And it really mm. does. You you start to kind of hear these uh, these kind of social mores of the time completely un. Uh, examined, you know, notions of class, notions of race um, that really are not scrutinised at all. They're very much assumed to be right. And and you, you set out with the character in that mindset that, you know, he is of his time and of his class, um, makes assumptions, but you undercut that at a certain point without sort of really undercutting the way that the narrative is flowing. Um, you know, how did you sort of try to wind that stuff in? Thank you. That, that's such a wonderful observation. Um, and I, I agree exactly with what you're saying. You know, I'm, I'm listening to some classic crime novels at the moment and they do exactly that. I've, I've just recently noted that myself. Um, so I, I did want to present this character as a character of his time, but I also wanted to pay my characters the setting and, and the history the respect of leaving it unexamined or uncritiqued. And the the direction that I took that mostly was in the direction of family and and marriage, um, but but also the interchange between class and so on. And so I guess that's taking it back again to that balancing act you were talking about, you know, with the voice making it authentic but not not silly, um, is making this voice again authentic but not unexamined. Yeah, this is a this is really a, a topic that's very rich right now for for historical fiction writers because there's these these deep questions about you know language use and and how we represent things and I think that the choices don't have to be um, you know you don't have to make choices that that then um, push an agenda of of what we used to read. I mean, we have to remember that there's a lot of characters and viewpoints that weren't shown in in literature because the the dominant paradigm really took over. So there's a lot of scope now for history writers to unearth voices that haven't really been, um, you know, given a go um, or given an examination um, 
and at the same time have a sense of historical authenticity. I really, uh, I feel like this book fits within that that kind of pantheon, but there's plenty of room. You know, I was even thinking while reading this, this that there's so many characters that we come across that I would love to, to hear from um, because we are in the, the sort of, uh, you know, the kind of narration of this 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 character. Um, have you considered whether or not to examine other angles from, from this book or perhaps do more along the lines of this type of historical fiction? Actually, yes. Um, I, I wrote this book specifically. I started it to enter into the Vogel Prize. I wrote it over eight or nine months in the circumstances I've mentioned. But it, it came from an older manuscript that I've been working on for about 10 years now, which is actually the story of Marianne McGinn, who is the woman that Gabriel is sent to Van Diemen's Land to find. And so her story is set, um, you know, 30 years before Gabriel's, and she she is very young at the beginning of it, and, and she's sent to Van Diemen's Land as a convict. And I would really like to, to examine that story um, and the trauma of it. Um, but like you say, you know, a lot of these voices were historically quite unexamined or unexpressed, and so the difficulty there is that you kind of have to read behind the lines I don't want to put words into into real historical people's mouths, but you you do have to do a bit of guesswork, I guess, a bit of educated guesswork when when expressing these voices. Yeah, I think uh, you know, and especially I guess you know, we're we're looking at a, a place and a time when enormous um, wrongs were done that weren't really examined. One of the things that that really should be considered is just. Uh, how abused women were, how abused, obviously, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were. But there's so many of these stories that that really weren't ever seen from the perspective of those who were written about but never from. So I think this this idea of, like, history being something that's set um, is is better challenged in fiction because you can have the licence to truly get to, to deeper truths. Um, I certainly hope to see more... Um, from you uh, on this. Um, do you feel like uh, when you're entering into the voice of uh, these other characters that you can, can find a model for how to construct them? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess something that I think about is the fact that even though our society and our circumstances have changed so intensely, we are still all having the same human experience. And so I guess the first place to look would be within myself and around at me, at, at the people I know best. I love looking at at older works of literature. Like, there's a moment in Shakespeare, I can't remember the play, but there's a lord and, and his servant and they're cloud-watching, and one of them says something like, you know, oh, that one's a camel, and, and the other says, no, it's a whale. And to me, that's just so resonant and so human, and it, it does give me hope that it's possible to catch those voices from earlier times. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, um, it's a really uh, excellent read um, and I highly recommend people um, get into it now. It's really definitely something that um, that I think is, uh, is going to be, um, you know, able to be read uh, while you're waiting for <laughs> lockdown to finish up. Will it ever finish? Uh, I don't know. Um, but certainly a lot of time to, to be spent now with novels like this. And I must congratulate you as well, Kate, on, on winning the Vogel. Uh, very well done for that too. Thank you so much for joining thanks me. So on, much, thanks so much for joining me today on Backstory, Kate. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
that was uh, Kate or K.M. Cromink, uh, whose book A Treacherous Country is out now through Alan and Unwin. Coming up next, for the very first time in its 11-year history, the Wheeler Centre has a new CEO, Caro Llewellyn, who will join me on the line. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now, for the very first time in its 11-year history, the Wheeler Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas is under new leadership. Inaugural CEO and Triple R Breakfasters alumni, Michael Williams, stepped down in March. Now, former Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director, founder of the Opera House Talks and author of Stella Prize shortlisted memoir, Diving into glass to name just a few of her many accomplishments, Caro Llewellyn steps into the role this month at a time when programming has moved online and the world looks very, very different. Caro Llewellyn joins me on the line now to talk about her journey to the Wheeler Centre. Caro, welcome to Backstory. Oh, hi. It's great to be talking to you. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Look, I'm so excited because this is really quite quite incredible. The Wheeler Centre literally was founded with Michael Williams at its helm. And so we've sort of really grown up with the Wheeler Centre looking one way. Um, But, you know, really it's one of those organisations that's done incredibly well during this time, keeping programming afloat. So I'm really thrilled to see uh, someone step in who has already shown themselves to be well across working within the kind of uh, COVID situation. You founded, I understand, a uh, an actual online programming of curated events uh, to support writers during the lockdown period uh, already. That's something that you've done. I did. That is correct. But I, now I just have to pick you up on something because um, it's really important that it feels to everybody in Melbourne that, you know, Michael Williams has been there and he has been. He has just forged this incredible program um, at the Wheeler Centre. And uh, before he was the director, he was actually the programming manager uh, under the auspices of the wonderful Chrissy Sharp, who is now at Sydney Writers Festival as their CEO. So it's had a slightly, and and in a weird twist of, in a very weird twist of uh strange things. Uh, Originally, I was going to be the inaugural director. Uh, I was living in New York um, and uh, for personal reasons, I couldn't take it up. So I've come full circle, but the Wheeler Centre has come full circle, but it's been under the auspices of two great leaders. uh, Firstly, Chrissy Sharp and then Michael Williams. Well, thank you so much for pulling me up on that. That's that's excellent. No, no, please. That's absolutely wonderful. It is such an important cultural institution here, so it's probably uh, great for us to get that absolutely right. Um, It's a really interesting time, though, for this uh, this organisation because you're really you're working with what was once live events um, that very much were about audiences attending to sort of see writers and other thinkers in person. Uh, to listen to them talk, to engage with ideas. But right from the very beginning, I feel like the Wheeler Centre has always really tried to engage with new ways of, of, you know, of getting ideas out there. And now seems like the perfect time to kind of push that 
boat further out. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of things that you hope to be doing as CEO? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. This is um, These are really challenging times. And the Wheeler Centre has been really at the forefront of pushing the envelope. You know, it's a centre for ideas and it's embraced that in itself and in its own way of looking at what it does um, and always tried to be innovative. And, um, you know, I think that the team has done incredible work with podcasts and putting programs online and um, with great audiences and great writers. So it's certainly set that bar high already. Um, And the new challenge is exactly as you say, how do we do that now when we can't get together um, in person? And, um, and, uh, and that will be a big challenge because I think people love, you know, this is the, this is the, the challenge that um, festivals, literary festivals, uh, is are grappling with as well as all the you know live performance arts um, dance theatre all of those institutions we're all grappling with it um, and I think that it also you know it's a challenge but it's also an amazing opportunity um, I think we can get too focused on what we do easily and best um, and that is you know put people in rooms together and they can shake hands and sit beside each other so how do we expand on that how do we make it so that people who even when we could sit down together, couldn't sit down together because of where they lived or that they had a disability or an access issue or what it was. So we're having to be more, you know, innovative and creative about how we do things. And I think that that will benefit, you know, everybody um, as well as just the people who normally come to our live events. But I think it will grow our audience and expand our parameters and our and our opportunities. Yeah, you've you've already kind of worked in this space uh, just during this this period. You started um, togetherremotely.com um, with kind of online programs, um, you know, specifically to support writers, to support booksellers during, you know, the pandemic, which has had an enormous impact on literally every industry. Uh, obviously, ours in particular has had some great challenges to overcome. I am really interested because over this period, I have talked to quite a few uh, festival programming directors. They're in a very different situation, though, to the Wheeler Centre because you're a year-round prospect. So you are constantly having to think about ways of framing things uh, that that will, you know, potentially be ongoing uh, in a much more remote sense. Can you talk about one or two of the sort of things that you feel like have been a a great benefit during this time? So you're right. I set up together remotely at 3 o'clock in the morning. Oh, my God, this is just terrible. I was watching everything fall over for writers and for booksellers and for festivals and and I thought what on earth can I do and I thought well I think that I could make a small contribution by using my international contacts and also my experiences of curating live events uh, to do the same thing online and I uh, and I decided to make it um, rather than just doing it free I thought I think that it's important that uh, I pay writers that's been my professional you know uh, my belief is that people should be paid for their work. Nobody else turns up to work for nothing, but people expect musicians and others to come and work for them and do benefits and all of those things. We turn to writers and to musicians and artists in times of crisis uh, to come and help raise money and do all of those things. Um, and uh, it was time I felt really that we needed to stand beside our writers and pay them. So that was my commitment. 
um, I also decided that it was important to charge people for the events, which is, you know, was pretty unheard of in the online uh, area because people just feel that they get online content for free. And I think we need to have a bit of a mind shift about that um, because somebody has to make it, create it, and um, and if we participate and use it and enjoy it and grow from it, then it's something that we can contribute to. So that's the background to it, and I think that the the challenge, um, you're right, that doing year-round programming for the Wheeler Centre, it's going to be really interesting how we can combine um, online programming with some, and I'm hoping that we can be creative about how we get together. Uh, you know, do we have, do we go into really big places and spaces and have people sitting, you know, four or five seats apart and we do it that way? I don't know what it looks like exactly. Um, I need to sit down with my wonderfully creative team at the Wheeler Centre who I'm sure have got a million ideas as well and for us to really nut that out together. Um, but I think it's exciting and I think that we can work with other cultural institutions um, to come together for a great solution about how we do this. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to the incoming CEO of the Wheeler Centre, Caro Llewellyn, uh, about her new appointment and some of the things that that might entail. Caro, I'm your CV is quite <laughs> extensive. Let's just say it's Did you say eclectic or extensive? I said extensive. <laughs> it's, it's it's staggeringly impressive. You've been um, both artistic director and CEO of the Sydney Writers festival you uh started a uh you know a writer's talk series uh at the sydney opera house the opera house talks um you've um been recruited to work um for pen um which is a uh, an organization that that works with writers who have been imprisoned around the world um you were recruited by Salman rushdie to do that just a little thing um you know all sorts of things that you've done um any one of them um is really quite impressive. But actually the thing that I've become fixated on is the fact that you've just been um, this year shortlisted for the, the Stella Prize for your memoir, Diving Into Glass. What, how on earth did you find the time to write a book around um, all of your obviously quite extensive, um, you know, commitments? Because I think that there's, you know, it, that working in these kinds of event spaces is so demanding, um, and writing itself is one of those one of those professions where you really have to find the time to cordon off to just sit and do it. So I really have to ask you, Caro, how have you managed to write not just a book but a, a, a shortlisted um, book for quite a, a well-regarded award during all of this um, amazing work that you do? Well, that's... Um it was an amazing uh, privilege and honour to be shortlisted amongst so many amazing books. And the, the long list was wonderful and the shortlist was, is wonderful as well. I, I didn't envy the judges, um, their task in trying, the stellar judges, um, trying to make that decision. And it was a great honour. Um, and the, the answer to your question about how I did it was, I, Mel, I took a really, really, really long time to do it. <laughs> That book took me about 15 years to write. So, you know, if you, if you look at it over a period, long period of that, um, I worked weekends when, uh, I could and mornings and evenings and, um, and I was, I was possessed to write that book. I don't know. I just needed every time I got rejected, every time it, it just got too hard. 
I would just somehow find the, I don't know, the, whatever it was, strange will to keep working at it and keep um, fine-tuning it. And I worked with wonderful editors and uh, my wonderful publisher at Penguin Random House, Nikki Krista. And so, but it took a long time. And, um, and you know, I had a lot of support at one point. Um, I was so desperate. I needed an editor. I was living in America, living in New York, and I needed an editor. And and I couldn't afford this guy who was just fantastic, but he was super expensive. And I was working with a wonderful young woman from Turkey who was interning with me at the time. And she said, oh, let's crowdsource it. So we did a, crowd, a crowdfunding campaign to get me an editor. So it's really it was really a... It took a village to write mm. that book. <laughs> it's a really great um, conversation to have, Kari, because I think people see these end products and, and especially someone who, you know, uh, like has such a busy schedule who is doing so much. And let's be honest, um, if you want to write a book really working either in publishing or working in events around publish, around publishing and books is probably not the ideal <laughs> circumstance um, to find the time to write. But I think that that it's important to talk about that struggle because it does take a lot of support to create a book um, and it shouldn't be underestimated. So I really, really appreciate you sort of sharing that because I think we also often think of the sort of, um, you know, that people can somehow manage to just magically do all this. No, it looks like magic and that's that's a part of the skill and part of the magic and it is part of the magic trick. But, you know, I, I can't tell you the support and the... Um, and the editorial support and smarts that I had helping me get that book into shape and make it into something that looked seamless and, you know, like it was a piece of cake to write. Um, editors are the unsung, uh, unsung heroes and heroines of, of um, every writer and um, you're only really as good as your editor. And uh, I was very lucky to work with Nikki Krista and um, Johannes Jacobson at... Uh, at um, Jacobs at uh, Penguin Random House um, and that was you know the book that I gave to them was a different beast um, not entirely of course but they certainly helped me refine it and get you know work out really what what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it in the clearest way without crowding it with other things um, so yes I'm ever indebted See these roles, of, uh, particularly the role of an editor, but also of the other, you know, other people involved in the publishing industry, is, is certainly something I'd love to see more of. Um, you know, these are topics that have been covered very much at the Wheeler Centre, but I think there is this real impression that there's the sort of writer as god, um, but really that's not how it works at all. It's as you say, it takes a village to to write a book, and editors are often very much the unsung heroes of that village. <laughs> Um, what, do you think that these are the kinds of things that you might be exposing, among others, um, while uh, while you're kind of looking at programming at the festival? I think. Oh, sorry, I think, at the, um, the centre. Yeah, no, I think that I think that we'll be doing lots of things. I think that you know these conversations have been taking place at the Wheeler Centre. They also take place at um, some of the other arts organised, you know, literary organisations that are housed at the Wheeler Centre. Um, obviously, the Writers Festival and the right, you know, the different organisations there. So, and we'll be working, you know, closely with those organisations and collaborations and and different kinds of partnerships 
um, in ways that we may haven't done to date yet so much. But that's certainly a wish of mine that we 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 all come together and you know we're housed in the same building and that we really make this beautiful community where we're sharing and and um, and exchanging ideas and and resources. So that's certainly something that I'm really interested to do. And I think that under those auspices, yeah, there'll be lots of those conversations. Mm. Um, and yeah. Last year, the Wheeler Centre, um, you know, started the inaugural Broadside Festival um, as part of the programming, um, which sold out almost immediately in, in most, of, most of the events associated with it, uh, an enormous um, feminist-focused festival um, or event that really just um, captured just an enormous array of ideas and speakers. I'm I'm really keen to find out whether or not, especially given the the new circumstances that you find yourself in, um, with the the festival being obviously in lockdown to a certain extent. Do you feel as though you can do something um, as big picture as that? Um, because it certainly was an incredibly exciting moment here um, to get that kind of um, you know umbrella around all these ideas that, that people want to kind of discuss and unpack and have real thinkers out to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that that was an incredible programming, uh, you know, a feat of programming and um, the calibre of people that came out as part of that program was amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, and, you know, we won't be able to do that in the real world for some time. You know, who knows when people are going to be able to travel from the United States or overseas from anywhere. Um, that could be a year or more away. It could be two years away. So we will want to, we want, we don't want to dampen our ambitions at all. Um, but we have to work out again creative ways for us to do that. And I think, you know, that's a little bit what I've been doing it, uh, together remotely. You know, we've been bringing writers from America and, um, Europe and um, England, and it's a zero uh, carbon footprint. It's great. It's great for the planet, <laughs> and um, and it's really resource. You know, it's very uh, it's very nimble, and um, it can happen really quickly. You know, I I launched uh, together remotely on April Fool's Day, and within about two weeks, you know. People like Andrew, Sean Greer, Pulitzer Prize winner were on and Colin McCann was on. And um, and so it can be very nimble in a way that, you know, these big events where you are booking people a year or so out in advance, um, you know, it's just it's not able to do. So actually I think that, yes, there'll be lots of opportunities to do those kind of things and to gather really, really important people. And, you know, we're competing with... You know, in the past, in the early days of festivals, you know, back in the dark ages when I was at Sydney Writers Festival, you know, we, it wasn't that every single city had a festival. Um, there were fewer and further between. But now, you know, tiny little places and all over the world has them. And so we're competing with Rome. We're competing with all of these places. It's a quick hop, skip and a jump from wherever it is that that writer may live. We're a long way away. So... Um, actually, we can play this to our advantage because a mm. lot of writers will say, you know, I can't make that trip. I just cannot get on that plane for 24 hours or whatever it is. And uh, I completely understand it. So um, so actually, I think there'll be lots of really exciting opportunities in, in, in these days. Well, I really look forward to seeing uh, what is coming up, Caro. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. 
Oh, it's been great. Thank you so much, and I hope we'll we'll do it many more times. Absolutely. That would be wonderful. Uh, Thanks for joining me today on Backstory. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Cara Llewellyn, the newly appointed Wheeler Centre CEO. And to find out more about the Wheeler Centre program, you can visit the Wheeler Centre, spelt with an R-E, dot com. That is very much all we have time for today on Backstory. I would like to thank my guests, Kate uh, Cromink or K.M. Cromink, author of A Treacherous Country, and the new Wheeler Centre CEO, Cara Llewellyn. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.